The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum, or welcome to Inspire FM. This is Friday Night Live. My name is Zafar Kabal. You're listening to Inspire FM once again, inshallah. Uh, another topical discussion today uh, featuring uh, items of discussion uh, for the Muslim community and our wider audiences, inshallah. So we're going to kick off today. Uh, in the newspapers, uh, you might have, might have seen some discussions around uh, Islamophobia within the Tory party. And we're going to talk to the chairman uh, of uh, the Muslim... Uh, Muslim Conservative Forum, inshallah, to talk about what's happening there and what's being done about it. Uh, we're going to talk later on about 6.30 uh, to the parents uh, of the school in Birmingham uh, in the middle of the LGBT row. Uh, we'll get an update f- from them as to what's happening. Uh, we're going to talk again about uh, another uh, Islamophobic-related Topic. Uh, and this is uh, about Ilhan Omar, the first elected lawmaker uh, in America, being subjected or accused of anti-Semitism. And lastly, uh, if you'd uh, been following Inspire FM, we have been doing a Muslim history series, uh, and we are talking about the Umayyads at the moment in our programming. Uh, and we have somebody who's got a bit of historical knowledge, I guess, who's a bit of an expert in this area. And we're going to give you a, a brief brush uh, of the, the period in which the Umayyads uh, ruled particular parts of the world. So that's the lineup today. Hopefully, you can join me. Uh, do jo- ring in, please, uh, inshallah, and then join me and make comments. Uh, my number is 01582481822. Uh, I can't promise it's going to be as exciting as it was last year, but uh, I'll do my best, inshallah. Uh, the topics that, that we were discussing are, f- are very important topics, uh, very relevant to the community, uh, the Muslim community. Uh, and uh, your feedback, your comments are always uh, appreciated, inshallah. So, 01582481822, if you want to take part uh, in the discussion today, or 0779481822, if you want to WhatsApp me and get your message across that way. Right, okay, uh, we want to open up with our first topic of discussion. Uh, you might have seen some, some articles uh, in, in the newspapers and on, online uh, about the suspension of, of 14 conservative members uh, from the party uh, on accusations of being, them being Islamophobic based on comments they've made on c- certain Twitter accounts. Uh, and uh, Lady Wasi, uh, who used to be the former chairman, or was the former chairman of the Conservative Party, has written about it in the uh, uh, Evening Standard, uh, highlighting the ongoing uh, issue of Islamophobia within the Conservative Party. Uh, so this is basically uh, that topic where we're discussing, and we have on the line uh with us uh, today inshallah the chairman of the uh muslim conservative uh, forum uh muhammad amin uh assalamu alaikum muhammad amin uh, welcome back uh, you are a regular contributor to this program and uh, right. we're very pleased to have you back I'm glad to help 
Brilliant. Okay, so uh, another accusation of Islamophobia within the Tory party. Um, what's, uh, what's the situation now? What's, uh, what's, the, 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 what's happening now at the moment? It's discouraging. Yeah. Last June, the Conservative Muslim Forum sent an open letter to Theresa May, the party leader, asking for an independent inquiry into Islamophobia, anti-Muslim bigotry within the Conservative Party. It's quite clear from my contacts with the party's chairman that they don't want to hold that inquiry. They Mm -hmm. are following a policy of being very tough on individual instances of bad behavior as and when they arise. For example, the introduction to your program about these 14 members. One of the concerns that I have is that the party deals much more strongly, much more decisively with very junior people, but it treats senior people, MPs, former foreign secretaries, with kid gloves, which Mm. is politically understandable given that the party doesn't have a majority in parliament, but at the same time, it still leaves me feeling somewhat dissatisfied. Sure, sure. Okay, so so you mentioned the the former... A uh, foreign. I think we we can guess who that is, uh, really. And, and the comment is Boris made. Johnson. It's not secret. I mean, he was. Yes. He wrote this article in the Telegraph in yeah. August of last year. Hmm. After that, there were official complaints about him. Yeah. The, the complaints were referred to the complaints procedure. Yeah. There was an investigation, and as a result of the investigation, he was cleared. The investigation report has never been published, but obviously right. a copy was given to Boris Johnson because in December, the Telegraph, for which he writes, published selective extracts from the inquiry report. Mm. But uh, the full report has never been published. We don't know exactly what definition of Islamophobia the inquiry was applying. And even the extracts that I saw published in the Telegraph lead me to feel that the there was a confusion in the minds of the people carrying out the inquiry mm. between Boris Johnson's rights to free speech as an individual mm. and what kind of conduct is appropriate from a senior member of the Conservative Party. I think the whole process needs more transparency. We should have the party saying who's been suspended. We should have the party saying when people are reinstated or when they're expelled, publishing their names and giving reasons for the decisions that the party has reached. Of course, these things haven't been done. Uh, and also, I, I guess these 14 people who have been suspended, uh, they've been, their comments have been pulled from an account uh, basically allegedly linked to Jacob Rees-Mogg, another senior Tory. Well, let's be precise. This is an account run by people who say they are supporters of Jacob Rees-Mogg. The same people could set up a Mohammed Amin support account and do anything that they liked on it. It should not be assumed that Jacob Rees-Mogg has anything to do with this account. And in fact, he said categorically, I I think, that that he's had nothing to do with it. Right. He has actually said that, has he? Because he he has... I I, I never say things... uh, on the media without being certain so i'm not sure but i do rec- i'm pretty sure i recall somewhere seeing that this is not an official jacob Rees smog account by any right. shape or form right but but he we're well, not sure whether he's actually distanced himself uh from this I, account i believe that he has but i i, I you can't can't verify I only, that's fine because i, I, I mean I if you, things it, are certain when i when i can remember them to certain sure but uh, i mean if you, if you google Rees smog in islamophobia you'll see a couple of videos where he's actually making some comments which are 
not very savoury to, uh, towards Muslims as well. And I do but remember his comments that are unsavoury towards Muslims or comments about Islam. Because I it's Islam, sorry, Islam about Islam. That's right. Yeah. So, well, so. people are free to have any views that they like about Islam. Jacob Rees-Mogg is a Roman Catholic. Right. I believe that Roman Catholicism theologically is fundamentally flawed. Mm. He's every bit as entitled to believe that Islam is fundamentally flawed theologically. Sure. Okay. So I think that's that's a discussion for another day. But I just want to focus on on these particular uh, people that are, were suspended. So do we, do we know the names of these people at all, or do you have any inclination of who they are? Uh, I don't think the party has published any names. I think some of the names will have appeared on social media as their sort of Facebook comments were picked up and sort of shared right. and publicised. But I'm not aware of the party publishing a list saying we have suspended person A, person B, person C, etc. Right. Okay. And and this, these people presumably were lay members, or were they actually MPs? Or no, no, the, uh, I'm not aware of. Not I'm sure that none of them was an MP. The, these were lay members. Some of them actually made a point of photographing their party membership card as part of their social media comments, so it's quite clear. The very first thing that the party does when it receives complaints of this kind, and I've I've seen uh, comments from Brandon Lewis on social media about it, is Mm. that they check, is this person a party member? Because if he's not a party member, it's nothing to do with the Conservative Party. If he is a party member, then the party can take action. And I'm sure there's also been accusations, I guess, about UKIPers joining the party, and it may well be people who've who've got that kind of mentality, that kind of... uh, world view who have actually joined the party absolutely many mps have made comments about their part the local party membership increasing yeah. uh, unexpectedly i recall that nick bowles has made comments like that and uh, sarah wollaston i think has made similar comments as well right although she's now left the party and joined the independent group right okay right so so i just need to understand i, I guess joining the party would be a relatively straightforward, would it? Uh, and there are some checks in whatever background checks done it's on people? Relatively, it is relatively straightforward. Background checks are done on people, and occasionally people who attempt to join the party are turned down. There was a case quite recently of somebody who was quite famous and associated with the UKIP mm. who tried to join the party and initially, I think, succeeded in joining at a local level, and then when head office found out about it, mm his membership was cancelled. Right, okay. So I, I just need to sort of dig down a little bit deeper on, on what suspension means. So presumably if somebody's suspended, um, they are banned for life? or, or what No, was? suspension is, means literally you have been suspended. So in other words, your party membership is no longer active. It's not the same as being expelled. Right. You're, and the reason why somebody is suspended is that an investigation is going on. Right, and, and that and might... at the end of the investigation, there will be a, a decision. Right, so so they might lead to something or may not lead to something. These these might be just headlines the party is putting out just to sort of uh, appear to be um, doing something, I guess. Well, not, it's stronger than just trying to, appearing to do something. If you have somebody where there is... Pri- if there was a, a complaint about me, for example, yeah. and it was quite clear that I hadn't done anything wrong at all, I wouldn't be suspended. The party would just reject the complaint. Hmm. If... The, the a complaint was made about me and the party wasn't sure whether I was innocent or guilty, I would expect them to suspend me mm-hmm. and then carry out a detailed investigation. At the end of the detailed investigation, 
I would either be expelled or I would be fully reinstated. Right, okay. So That's ex- what suspension means. So expulsion means that they can't, can't reapply again or it just means that they're expelled for a period of time and then... Expulsion means you've been expelled. If, if a person who has been expelled reapplies for membership, mm. they will be looked at very, very carefully and very cautiously. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean that in 20 years' time, somebody who was expelled, if they reapplied, it, they were automatically turned down again. If mm. somebody was expelled and applied to join again two weeks later, mm. I'm pretty confident that it, the it application would be. be rejected. Right, okay. So I, I guess from the discussion we've had so far, uh, your your position is that, that not enough is being done, and these suspensions, although individually are welcome, uh, not enough is being done to sort of root out, I guess, the people who, who are holding these particular views against Muslims uh, from being associated with the party? Well, it's a different kind of question that I would ask, which is this. Mm. The Labour Party has had major problems with anti-Semitism, but hasn't, as far as I'm aware, had problems with anti-Muslim sentiment, although I've seen something in the media this week about a Scottish person and Hamza Yusuf, but that's a sort of one-off. The, the Labour Party has had big problems with anti-Semitism, but no problems particularly with anti-Muslim sentiments. Mm. The Conservative Party has had problems. You can debate whether they are big problems, small problems, or middle-sized problems with anti-Muslim people, but hasn't had any problems that I'm aware of about anti-Semitism. Now, the question needs to be asked, what is it about the Labour Party that encourages anti-Semites to think that they belong there. Now, that's a problem for the Labour Party to deal with. But the, pro- the question that the Conservative Party needs to ask itself very seriously is, what is it about our party that makes people who are anti-Muslim bigots think that they have a place in our party? Mm. And, and that, that's, uh, I guess, what Lady Vice has been calling out, the fact that there is, there is perhaps uh, an attraction, at least anyway, uh, to people of that ilk into the Conservative Party, and that must, that attraction must come from, uh, I guess, uh, our view that at least these people have about the party. That's right. There must be something about the Conservative Party that leads people, quite wrongly in my view, to believe that anti-Muslim figures have a place in the party. And, and, and of course, uh, the question then arises, is, and I think back to your original comment, uh, which is the party is not enough, doing enough to dispel that. And I think what you're saying is when it comes to senior people, they tend to shy away. Uh, but uh, I guess if you were to draw parallels with with, uh, with uh, the Labour Party, I think Labour Party will actually say, well, we in effect, the problems aren't uh, as big. And I think the quoted figures as something like 0.2% of the party membership who've been, who've been uh, alleged to have these uh, type of views. But the fact is that that the the Jewish community is able to uh, articulate, you know, anti-Semitic views better than perhaps the Muslims. So that begs the question: Is our community, the people that we elect, um, are they perhaps not doing enough to highlight, uh, you know, a similar sort of situation within the Conservative Party? Well. I don't like throwing mud at other parties, but I think the way that you characterized it is not the way that I would characterize it. Absolutely uh, not. Not being a Tory. In the, in, the, in the Conservative Party, which I've been a member of for 35 years, yeah. I've never believed at any stage, including now, that the leadership of the party is anti-Muslim. Which, which is the same thing the Labour Party will argue as well. 
I have very serious concerns about the Labour Party and the attitude of its And, and of course you would have take been a, a Conservative, very, I have to add. No, no, take a very concrete example. It, it's, the one that, it's, a, it's the thing that's horrified me more than anything else. Mm. You remember the famous mural in the East End, which was taken down by Tower Hamlets Council in 2012? I, I think there isn't anybody from the Labour Party here to defend their accusations. Yeah. I think it's probably better to focus on the Conservative Party and, and which... Yeah, but it, it, was, it was you that started the comparison, so I'm finishing it for you, which is that when Jeremy Corbyn couldn't see that that mural was... The, the point I was making is the fact that... that the, the, the point I was trying to make is that, that, that perhaps the... The, the people who are fighting, you know, uh, anti-Semitic views are better organized than Muslims. The, that's what I'm trying to, the point I was trying to make. Uh, I think Muslims have been pretty thorough at raising these issues. Baroness Varsi has raised them, Lord Sheikh has raised them, I have raised them. Other people at sort of grassroots level have raised them. Right, okay, So, but but are they getting the same sort of traction from the media and from, uh, I guess, from the, the powers that be uh, that perhaps the accusations uh, against Labour? I've seen a fair amount of coverage recently in the media, and it, it depends on which bit of the media that you, you take. I mean, parts of the media are very strongly pro-conservative, and yeah. obviously they're a bit reluctant to give too much coverage to issues like this. Sure. But it's had plenty of media coverage recently. Right, OK. Um, but you, So, so you're, you're saying that there is the media coverage, um, and the, the party is responding but perhaps not responding uh you know when when the accusations are for the for the senior leadership within the conservative party okay let's move on you mentioned lady varsi a couple of times uh yeah. what what's your um what do you think about lady varsi i admire her courage in raising these issues as she said several times she's been trying behind the scenes for a long time in the same way that when the zach goldsmith mayoral campaign was yes. going on various people tried to raise the nature of that campaign behind the scenes and got nowhere. I've even seen some of the private correspondence myself, and I'm not going to name any names. Sure. And she, she's gone public, which is a very painful thing for conservatives to do, because conservatives don't like rocking the conservative boat. But sure. she's done it because she cares about the party and she cares about the country. Right. And, and is she getting the support that you might think, you might expect that she would be getting from other colleagues? Not necessarily Muslims, but other colleagues within the Conservative Party. Are they, is she being taken seriously? I think she's being taken seriously on a case-by-case basis. So when she raises things publicly with the party chairman, which I've seen her do a number of times on Twitter, mm. swift action is taken. But the fundamental point that she's been making since last summer, which also the Conservative Muslim Forum has been making and Lord Sheikh has been making, which is the need for an independent inquiry, that has so far not been taken positively. Right, and why why is that then, do you think? Is it because of the political climate, or is there um, a deeper resistance within the party? There's always a reaction in any organisation when complaints are first raised against it to say either that there isn't a problem or that the problem is a few bad eggs mm-hmm. and to try to deal with the bad eggs. Yeah. I think the party needs to face up to the wider issue and it hasn't done that yet right and and what do you think needs to happen to make the party do that uh, first of all every individual instance of anti-muslim bigotry that anybody sees from a conservative they should write to the conservative party 
that on the Conservative Party website is the Code of Conduct, and there is a complaint email address published by the Conservative Party. And I would encourage everybody who encounters uh, anti-Muslim bigotry from a Conservative to report it. Right. Okay. And they'll go through the, the investigative process. So I guess let's turn a little bit more to, to your organization, uh, the Conservative Muslim Forum. And I think you're saying that, that you've been the Conservative for a while and this forum has been set up recently or has it been around for a while? I've been a party member for 35 years. The forum was set up in 2005 by Lord Sheikh, mm-hmm. who was the first Muslim peer of the modern era. He was made a member of the House of Lords by Michael Howard in 2005. Right. And I got involved with the Conservative Muslim Forum itself in 2006 when I first met Lord Sheikh. Right. And and in what sort of role do you play within the Conservative Party then? I guess apart from promoting the party, uh, I guess you are within the party itself rep- trying to represent a, a Muslim voice? What we do is two things. We encourage Muslims to join the party. We encourage Muslims to vote for the party. And we encourage Muslims to think about becoming candidates. Mm-hmm. We also campaign on behalf of the party and we give advice and, and help to non-Muslims in the party about Islam, about how to appeal to Muslims. We, I've, been asked, I've been consulted in the past, for example, by people about what to wear when visiting a mosque, do's mm-hmm. and don'ts, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess in some ways your organization could act as a lobby, I guess, uh, within the Conservative Party. And is it? We act as a lobby only on issues that are unambiguously uh, held as important by all Muslims. So, for example, we are vociferous on halal food, the right to wear religious clothing. Yeah. Uh, we don't get involved in what you would call individual issues where people might take alternative views. So uh, we don't, for example, get involved in foreign policy. We don't get involved in domestic policy. We don't get involved in tax policy or Brexit because there are Muslims who will be on one side of the argument and Muslims who will be on the other side of the argument. Mm. But in my view, there are no Muslim issues apart from the small handful of religious issues I mentioned before. Mm. But you, I think people would argue that foreign policy is, another, is a very contentious area and I think that's where voice is needed. Well, let's take... A, Iraq. There are Muslims who were in favor of the invasion of Iraq. There are Muslims who were against the invasion of Iraq. Mm. I was, uh, maybe I was right or wrong, but in 2003, I thought the invasion of Iraq was necessary. Mm. Uh, clearly, there were no weapons of mass destruction. But the c- conduct of, not so much the campaign, but the aftermath of winning the campaign was utterly appallingly incompetent by America and Britain alongside America. So I was wrong, but there were there were Muslims who supported the invasion as well as the Muslims. Sure. Who I, I'm sure. That, I mean, so if you, I guess if you if you were to sort of uh, uh, extrapolate uh, ex- extrapolate that kind of thinking, then and there's going to be very few issues that, that you actually try to represent because every every, not, every Muslim every Muslim will have views one way or the other. Absolutely, we are not an issues lobbying organization. That's one of the things that many people used to misunderstand. So several years ago, we put an item on our website which actually explains why in the normal, for most things, we do not take a policy position. There are very few things where the CMF has a policy. So, so in, in that case, I think, could you not stand accused of being toothless, really? You haven't got a position on, on a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the issues that people think should be dear to the Muslims, and you haven't got a position on it. 
that's because those people are wrong to think that the CMF should take a position on them. The CMF will only take a policy position on things where we believe that all Muslims have a yes. common interest, which are the ones that I mentioned to you before. Fortunately, Israel and Palestine, there are Muslims who will have different views on Israel and Palestine. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's, that's another discussion for another day. But I think, yeah. fortunately, uh, you do believe that, that this Islamophobia issue is everybody's on the same page on this. And, and and hopefully you are working tireless to try and raise voices within the Conservative Party to deal with it. Yes, that's why we issued our open letter to Theresa May. That's why I've spoken in the media about it on many, many occasions. Okay, all right. Uh, I, I guess we're coming to, to the close of the sh- show, uh, really. So I guess last few comments from yourself regarding what you think um, needs to happen to actually bring some sort of a change within the party, really, and, and trying to trying to get a different image to, to what it has at the moment. The most decisive thing that can be done to change the Conservative Party is for more Muslims who share the Conservative Party's general philosophy on things like the economy, taxation, education, health, etc., to join the Conservative Party, because the best way to get rid of any anti-Muslim bigots, whether there are few or many within the party, is have Muslims come in and join the party and raise the voice from within right thank you very Absolutely. much Mohammed Amin Saab uh, fantastic to have you again uh, on my show and hopefully we'll speak uh, in the future on other items of uh, interest to the community thank you very much inshallah right so that was uh, Mohammed Amin who's the chairman of the conservative Muslim forum talking about Islamophobia within uh, within the conservative party uh, right. Um, the, after the, we're going to take a short break, inshallah, in a few minutes, a few seconds, uh, and after that, we're going to talk about another contentious issue, uh, which uh, which the Muslim community has has a deep interest in, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about that. And this is the school in Birmingham, which has been uh, um, basically engaged in LGBT issues. Right. Uh, inshallah, we'll come back after the break and discuss that. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum, welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM. This is Friday Night Live. Uh, my name is Safari Kabal. Right, uh, before the break, we, we were talking about the uh, Islamophobia within the Tory party. We had uh, uh, Muhammad Amin, chair of the Conservative Muslim Forum on, and he was talking about what action he has been taking to highlight um, the impression that many people have, uh, or impression that some people have that they could, uh, you know, Conservative parties are home for people who have anti-Muslim uh, views, uh, and what he's been doing about uh, about it, and what... Uh, Lady Varsi has been uh, talking about uh, in the, the newspapers. So, so that was uh, Islamophobia within the Tory party. Uh, we're going to move on to another uh, topic, uh, another interesting topic, uh, I guess, from a Muslim perspective. Uh, and this is uh, the case of the, uh, the Parkfield School uh, in Birmingham, uh, where 
the head teacher uh, has uh, introduced a new, new, uh, new, I guess, a new program called No Outsiders. Uh, it's to basically talk about and highlight uh, LGBT rights uh, within primary schools. Uh, and this uh, this particular issue has been been much talked about, and a lot of newspapers have written articles about it. Uh, and the parents uh, of that school uh, are not happy about it, basically. So we've had uh, discussions about this on Inspire FM before. Uh, and they are objecting to the fact that perhaps uh, children of primary age are being taught uh, basically uh, complex matters uh, of sexuality uh, which they which they may or may not uh, uh, fully appreciate uh, the head teacher of that place uh, is all is uh, appears to be an LGBT activist and he has uh, uh, he's actually quite uh, has quite a high profile uh, and he's the one who's leading on this no outsider uh, out no outsiders uh, project now we have uh, on the line a parent uh, from the Parkfield School in Birmingham. Uh, his name is uh, Amir Ahmed, and we're going to talk to him to try and find out what the latest situation is uh, in the school. Assalamualaikum, Amir. Walaikum salam. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Yourself? Good. Good, mashallah. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, have we spoken? We have spoken before, haven't we? I, th- I think um, may, we may well have, actually. I can't quite remember, but I think Inspire, I was on Inspire Radio perhaps uh, three weeks ago. Through three weeks ago. I think that might, that might have been the case. Okay. Right. Okay. So can you tell us what the latest is? Uh, I think there has been a few few more headlines since, uh, since I guess we spoke last time. W- what's the latest situation and uh, I guess what's behind the headlines? Well, well, basically, the the school is still uh, standing its ground. We uh, last Friday, uh, parents uh, withdrew six hundred children from the school. Yeah, um, and, and the school has a, a, a pupil population of seven hundred forty uh, odd. Um, and and the, the that that did you know, it, it it had uh, it did have a huge impact on the school, but it's clearly they they are still being. I think supported in the background by the education department uh, and other people, mm-hmm. um, and they they think that they can uh, still carry on as they were were before. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, the parents are committed uh, to not having the No Outsiders program taught to their children, and they will uh, carry on protesting. There's a, a, there's been a protest every Thursday for the last uh, four weeks. Yeah, and uh, if um, you know, if we need be, we will withdraw all our children from the school. And if uh, you know, there's no children, there's no school. It's our choice what our children are taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 school should respect the parents' wishes. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you know, the, the behavior, quite frankly, is just outrageous. Mm-hmm. They, 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 yeah. So uh, I'm just trying to think. Uh, as it stands at the moment, the parents have a. A right to withdraw children from these lessons, not necessarily the school. Uh, it, why is that not being exercised? Well, well, well I mean, the, the, the parents have a right to have their children educated according to their wishes. This is a, this has been enacted in uh, uh, legislation passed by Parliament in mm. 1844, and it's very clear. It, it says um, uh, children are to be educated in accordance to the wishes of um, of their parents. Mm. And then the Human Rights uh, um, Act 1988 also says that you know that the state must uh, provide 
uh, education uh, to children according to the uh, um, the parents' um, beliefs. Sure. Uh, uh, so, so you know, and 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 the, the simp- uh, our contention right from the beginning has been that uh, our children's belief around homosexuality is being changed. Hmm. It's not. This is nothing to do with this, uh, teaching uh, um, children not to discriminate. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they want to teach children not to discriminate, they, there are plenty of anecdotes in our uh, in our community's ethos. We are very respectful of our elders, of our parents, of our neighbours, and and you can easily teach children to respect all human beings. Uh, it, it's not necessary for people to know, uh, uh, you know, for, for them to know whether what sexuality an individual is. Mm. Treat them, you know, with with, uh, with respect and dignity. Mm. And of course, because um, some quite high-profile Muslims have actually come out in support of the program, uh, including some hijabi women, I guess, written in in the Guardian, etc. Um, so, what 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 the school you mean? Uh, about the issue, basically, about the fact that, uh, you know, children ought to be taught about LGBT issues, etc., at that young age. I mean, what, what, why would you have an objection to it? Well, I mean, you know, teaching children that it's okay to be gay, mm. you know, at the age of four, mm. is absolutely ridiculous. We, we don't teach our children uh, uh, about heterosexual relationships, that's not homosexual relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we, we we prefer to keep our children innocent. So, in fact, they they uh, because they they don't have a, a, a sense of uh, you know uh, significance about uh, sexual relationship um, and and its responsibilities. I think you know, you're, you're, so. I guess you're, the point you're trying to make is is that we don't talk about sexuality of any sort at that particular age. Um, so, therefore, mm-hmm. it, it, it basically tips the scales a little bit, right? If you talk about LGBT issues, all right? Uh, absolutely, that's right. It, it, it already gives the children a bias, and 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 it is. I mean, the intention of the program is to plant uh, a seed in the child's mind that it's okay to be gay. Uh, it's okay to have a lesbian relationship or a. Or a gay I, I guess I guess the, the the community would argue that that's that's the choice that's presented in in this society that there is equality and 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 that's what they're trying to do achieve that quality. But we're we're not uh, disagreeing with that. We we don't have any um, argument on that. Um, uh, you teach children not to discriminate, mm. and, and as far as their beliefs are concerned and their m- moral values, they mm. come from that comes from their parents. Sure, you know, oh. parents have have a right over their children's. Okay. Uh, um, uh, belief. So just just focusing on on the headlines a little bit. So I saw headlines last week saying that that the school has actually done a uh, has actually responded uh, uh, to the, the the children who've been taken out, um, and, and and you know they've actually ab- abandoned this this program. Is that not the case then? No, no. The school uh, has a, a schedule of lessons yeah. that are part of the No Outsiders program. Right. And uh, over the next six weeks, we believe that the schedule is empty. They, they, they didn't have anything scheduled. Right. So, so they claimed that they were uh, not going to teach no outsiders mm-hmm. um, uh, for the next six weeks. But, you know, that may have been interpreted, interpreted uh, as being, you know, that they've stopped no outsiders. They haven't stopped no outsiders. They, in fact, recently said that they're going to restart it uh, in, the, in the new term. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I, I want to try and gauge uh, the level of support that you have. I guess I, I mean, it, is your school? 
um, in a peculiar case, or is there a wider discussion around this topic? Actually, the the you know what, the situation, in fact, is that uh, the manner in which they have implemented this mm. is uh, uh, is so devious mm. and it's deceitful, yeah, uh, and and insincere and dishonest mm. that you know most of the community in Alam Rock yeah. and in Smallies don't know what they're teaching. Mm. Uh, terms are used such as "are we celebrating diversity and difference?" Mm. You know, that doesn't mean anything to, um, uh, to a lot of the community members. Um, it, it, and when we use uh, uh, um, clear, frank terms like lesbian and gay values and lifestyle, and um, they, they we're considered uh, when we're speaking in these terms in such an overt manner, we're considered as homophobic. Well, you know, this is what this is what it is that they're teaching. Yeah, talking about celebrating uh, diversity and difference, you know, our, our, our parent community doesn't understand that. Mm. Mm. And and, uh, um, uh, and 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 so the situation really is is that we we have been in uh, this campaign has increased awareness within uh, Birmingham uh, on, on this issue, and more and more parents are becoming actually aware of the truth. Mm. Of, of the of what was, what is actually being taught, mm. um, and and we, our support is increasing. It's but it's, it, I mean, to be honest, if 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 the I guess if the school presents presents the what they teach in terms like that, very sort of toned down terms like that, um, you know, uh, you know, can you can you suspect all circumstances? Uh, of that, it may well be that in those, uh, in those topic, in those headlines or the subjects, um, you know, quite acceptable stuff. Uh, I guess to 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 all the communities being taught, rather than what you suspect might be the case. Yes, no, I mean, you know, the, the Equalities Act. Uh, see, uh, Mr. Moffat is using the, the Equalities Act as a vehicle to promote uh, homosexuality in, in, in the school, and. Um, uh, uh, but the Equality Act is uh, is a fairly comprehensive uh, uh, piece of legislation that uh, safeguards people from being discriminated. That includes, you know, old people, uh, gender uh, um, discrimination, you know, uh, uh, race, religion, uh, and, and and a number of other um, characteristics. It has nine characteristics, protected characteristics. Mm. Uh, one of them is sexual orientation. Mm. Um, now, the, the, this, this uh, program, No Outsiders, uh, written by, um, uh, designed by Andrew Moffat, fo- does focus very much on uh, sexual orientation. Mm. Um, uh, so, 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 you know, the, the, and so the Equality Act is used as a vehicle mm. to, in fact, promote um, a, a, an LGBT way of life. And, and I guess that they would argue that, that you know, the community is being... Uh, discriminated against, and this is one way of ensuring that uh, you know there isn't discrimination in people's minds. And well, I mean, uh, if if you know the LGBT community is being discriminated, I sympathise with them, and and I would uh, support any um, uh, in, in, any anything that would uh, safeguard them from being uh, discriminated, and mm. then challenges homophobia. But well, what I can tell you is that this program is not about challenging homophobia it is about promoting homosexuality mm. now you know if you if you want to um uh, teach children not to discriminate i mean you know i i didn't learn uh, no outsiders 
when I was at school. Yet, you know, we, um, I, I, we ha- I have a, I regularly uh, meet uh, a gay individual at uh, at our local grocery store, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and I treat him with just the same respect I would as I would treat anyone else at that store. Um, and there are plenty of white, Asian, Muslims, Christians working there. So, g- uh, give me give me an example of why why this particular program uh, you think is about promoting um, you know a different homosexual lifestyle rather than and what what the, the the parents of of the children have. What, why is this particular program objectionable? Well, I mean, they, they, uh, it, it teaches. Uh, he, he has. Uh, um, it teaches. Children, uh, children have to affirm that it's okay to be gay, hmm. right? Um, uh, for example, uh, they had a, a gay rugby player um, oh. visit the school yeah. uh, who, who played with the children, and then um, uh, at the end of it, uh, he 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 was asked to declare that he's he's gay, hmm. and and uh, and then uh, the children were 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 asked to affirm that there was nothing wrong with that. Hmm. Hmm. I think, I think right? people. Now, now, and, you know, so, so, so you know what, 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 and you know, what, what the program requires is that children, children affirm that being gay is okay. Mm-hmm. Which, and which, I, I, which I guess, which I guess is what, what you know, what, what I guess this is what the legislation is is trying to sort of uh, uh, target, really, isn't it? The well, equality is no, great. There, there's no legislation to promote homosexuality. Mm. Absolutely no legislation from. I mean, Margaret Thatcher uh, had uh, specifically had uh, legislation to say that homosexuality must not be promoted in schools. Mm. Uh, how that was repealed earlier uh, in, in around two thousand and three or two thousand four. Um, but the um, and, and there's no legislation that says that this this should be promoted. The Discrimination Act, uh, e- uh, Equality Act, twenty ten. Mm. Right, that that you can teach children not to discriminate. By simple, by by basic, uh, uh, you know, uh, just teaching them good moral values, uh, good family values, and mm. and and, uh, and and teaching them to respect all human beings. Yeah, okay. um, and that that's what that's what I was taught, and this is you know this is why I I uh, I don't need to know whether someone what sexual orientation they are. Mm. Uh, I, I treat them the same as anyone else with you know with respect and dignity. Right. Okay. So let, let, let's tr- try and sort of gauge. Uh, I know there was, there was a um, there's a basically a campaign to try and get some Q and A time in the parliament, uh, um, and then that attracted sort of quite a few. I think more than hundred thousand signatures. Uh, yeah. I'm just wondering what, whether there has there is a response to that, or there has been a response to that at all. Um, well, yes. I mean, you know, I, I think um, to be honest, we we have been. Uh, this campaign has mostly been concentrating on um, uh, Mr. Moffat's uh, program called No Outsiders, right, which okay. is based on uh, uh, on the Equality Act. But mm. it, the, the sex and relationship um, legislation is coming coming out. Mm. Um, you know that that again. You know, I mean, I think what people don't seem to understand, you know, it's, it's not quite appreciated, is that um, we we are here in, in Avonmore. We are. A very conservative community, mm. and our family values are also very conservative. Mm. And, and and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing illegal about that. Mm. Um, and 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 you know to to um, uh, bring about. I mean, even see, the, it, it, legis- legislation is one thing. Mm. Then a primary legislation, 
But then when, I mean, I think these recent, uh, the draft guidelines, the secondary legislation, here the Department for Education, I think, is very much influenced by the LGBT lobby. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, this sexual relationship for education also uh, uh, is used by the uh, uh, um, LGBT lobby to include, um, you know, various uh, uh, you know, the sexual uh, relationships and, and uh, uh, um, to teach those. Mm. Uh, so homosexuality so, again. So I, I, I get that you're trying to look, uh, focus on the local issue. Um, so what, what about support? Have you been getting support from a wider the populace within Birmingham, or is, is it just the school? No, we we have uh, we have support from the Jewish community, um, and and we are uh, um, uh, we, we have support from the Christian community as well. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, there, it's, it's, and it's not just uh, you know uh, we are also talking to. Uh, the Sikh and Hindu community. We're, we're in fact going to be organising a conference on the 23rd mm. uh, of this month. Uh, hopefully, it's not it's not fully confirmed yet. But mm. um, uh, we will have a, a number of other uh, faith groups joining us as well in that conference. Okay. All right. Um, and what what has been the response from the school so far? Have they not? And they're not. I, I guess what you're seeking to get this particular No Outsiders program cancelled. Is that is that your objective, or your objective is to sort of raise, I guess? Um yes. Well, I mean, you see, we we have we've basically lost all trust in this program and in the way the um, school has implemented it. They've been quite per- uh, pervasive in, in in the way they implemented it. They've you know they've got uh, uh, arithmetic questions involving gay, lesbian uh, mm. families. They've uh, they've included in lit- literacy uh, on posters in assembly, even in PE. Mm. Uh, so they they've made it a whole school ethos. Mm. Um, well, I, I, I guess your 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 particular school was accused of of you know maybe having a similar ethos or an Islamic ethos previously, and uh, basically no, no, that's, lab- that's a different school. Uh, this right. Is, this is the the school we're talking about here, um, where Andrew Moffat teaches, and he's. In, he's right. Okay. So that was okay. In, in Birmingham, there was a school which was labelled. Yeah. Uh, that, a Trojan that, horse because it tried to introduce yeah, an Islamic was, ethos in the school. Yeah, that was Parkview School. Parkview it's now called, uh, it's now has a different name, uh, but that that was that was Parkview School. It has a similar name to this one. To this, uh, okay. that was a secondary school as so well. This is a primary school. It's called Parkfield. School. Right. Okay. So, so the the school has so far resisted any attempts to try and modify their pr- program. Uh, yeah, yes, that's right. Um, uh, the the but but I mean what what we what we're looking for the school to do is there, there's no uh, uh, legislation or, or law that says you have to implement no outsiders in any school. Uh, we want them to abandon the, the the program and and then we can look at alternatives. Mm. But uh, I, I just I just go back to my earlier question really is, is that uh, the the parents have a right at this stage to withdraw from that lesson and the school has an obligation to try and find alternative basic activities for them uh, so why 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 aren't the parents exercising that right and then just yeah let me yeah, sorry let me explain that. I mean I mean you're perhaps thinking of um, sex relationship education where you know they've got discrete lessons yeah. uh, for which the children can be children right can so be this children. is this is all encompassing this is all encompassed throughout the school ethos you see it's, right okay uh, and, and then and, and that's deliberate, I think, so that basically parents can't request 
that they be removed from from this teaching because it's because it's, it's everywhere. It's not discreet, you know. It's spread all over the treatment. Right. Okay. So so it's an attempt to attempt to bypass that particular choice that parents have. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. uh, okay. So so where where, where is this going to take uh, take you then? Uh, if you, if the school is quite holding the ground and and you are protesting every Thursday, like you're saying, where is this likely to end? Well, I mean, basically, you know, the, the the parents are quite adamant. If um, uh, if if these are our children, it's our choice. Uh, if the school, uh, it, it's just <coughs> in, in any normal school would by now have uh, ha- have respected the parents' wishes. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible that Park Parkfield School, uh, you know, is still uh, uh, saying that it won't listen to the parents. And what, what's, um, been, what's been the response of the local authority then? Well, what's their position? What have they been saying? <coughs> the problem is, is that local authority has supported this program. Right. Uh, the, this program is is supported by Prevent. Mm. Um, the, the head teacher, um, uh, Ms. Pulley, uh, she made a presentation to government, and uh, uh, and, um, and 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 she 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 you, she, she said that. This program could be used to de-radicalize mm. children. I mm. mean, I can't find that quite incredible uh, that you know that was even suggested. Um, but uh, they, uh, I assume that they will, you know, uh, get some funding. Uh, so what? what so what? What about what about the elected elected members right, within the council and I guess your MPs? What, what's their position been? Well, okay, I mean. Um, the, 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 I think the, the the standard position of our local M- MP Liam Byrne and uh, neighbouring MP um, Shabana Mahmood is that it's um, not uh, age appropriate the mm. teaching mm. and uh, that parents weren't consulted uh, properly. So, but I mean that that might be their position. But are they actually doing something about it? Are they doing something to to basically um, get that message across to the powers that be? Really. Well, I mean, they they may well be making some effort in that in that regard, but I think the school is uh, showing a lot of resistance mm. uh, because uh, I, I think this this program has been going on here for four four years. It is um, uh, implemented in in uh, you know many other schools as well. Mm. So if if uh, if it's abandoned here, they they it will probably be abandoned el- elsewhere as well. Mm. So it's not maybe you know, this is why they they're holding out so uh, uh, so stubbornly um, that it, it, it not only will there be an issue here it'll be an issue in other schools as well but the, 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 what they don't seem to understand actually is that there's going to be an issue in other schools anyway because you know more and more parents uh, in fact uh, there are another four schools in uh, in um, Birmingham uh, Lee School. Uh, Alston School, Marlborough School, and Wincliffe School that are implementing uh, this this program, and there are issues there. Where parents are um, uh, protesting there as well. When I say protesting, they're speaking to the school, um, uh, and they're part of the Lee Trust. There's also Anderson Park School as well. Uh, okay, so so I'm I'm running out of time yeah. now. We've only got a few minutes, uh, but I guess uh, in the last sort of few minutes or so. Uh, w- how far will you go? Will you how will you how far will the parents go to actually try and get a, a positive response? <clears throat> you know, you 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 haven't seen, you know, uh, half the outrage that parents feel mm. and what the the, the 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 attitude of the school. 
um, the way they have deceived parents about mm. the whole program, and 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 now the attitude uh, towards the parents in that they're not they're not uh, listening to the parents. Um, the, the, this uh, the, the the parents are quite adamant, and they will uh, steadfastly hold to this that they want the program abandoned. Mm. If it's not abandoned, then you know we we are protesting. And we uh, will, you know, we withdraw all our children from from the school. Right. Okay. Uh, Ahmad, Jazakallah I'm, I've run out of time. Thank you for for your time today, and hopefully, uh, we'll hear our guests an update. Uh, uh, you know, in a few weeks' time, inshallah. Jazakallah Khairan. Okay. Right. Uh, time for a quick break again, inshallah. Join me again after the break. Assalamu alaikum. This is Atif Nawaz, and you're listening to an Inspire FM podcast. Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM. Uh, this is Friday Night Live. My name is Zafar Iqbal. Uh, we were talking before the break uh, about uh, the school in Birmingham, uh, which is protesting against the teaching uh, of a new curriculum, a new a new project basically being introduced into, into the school called No Outsiders, uh, seeking to basically highlight LGBT issues within the primary schools. We had Omar on the line, uh, and he talked extensively about uh, the feelings of the parents and uh, what they're doing to prevent, uh, I guess, their young children from being taught things of, of that nature. Okay, um, now we want to move on to a slightly different topic. Uh, I guess it's in connection, it's in, I guess it's in keeping with the theme that we've had this, this evening about, uh, uh, about discrimination, uh, and we want to talk about um, basically uh, Ilhan Omar. So Ilhan Omar, you may know, uh, or you may have heard basically that uh, she is uh, the she's a hijabi congresswoman uh, in the House of Representatives in America, and she was the first female Muslim member uh, of the House of Representatives. Um, she made some comments uh, about Israel. Uh, and that has attracted the ire of the pro-Israel lobby uh, in America, uh, and she's come up with some, uh, well, some considerable amount of stick. Um, I've got on the line uh, Ibrahim uh, Hooper, who is, um, which we're trying to get hold of, uh, inshallah. Um, so this this particular story uh, has been hitting sort of the international headlines. Uh, Omar basically made a comment about the fact that uh, the pro-Israel lobby um, lobby uh, is uh, is strong in America, and then basically you have to uh, you have to sort of basically be in keeping with their particular line uh, in order to get an easy ride in the political system. I guess to those to that effect, uh, and she's been been uh, called anti-Semitic. Uh, and quite a few few people or few organizations have actually sort of demanded that that uh, um, she resign, etc. Um, so we're going to talk to somebody uh, from America to actually talk about uh, this particular issue and, and why it's become such a big issue uh, in America. So before, uh, while we're trying to get hold of somebody uh, from uh, from America, we're trying to get hold of somebody from CARE, uh, which is the Council of uh, American Islamic uh, relations. Uh, while we get somebody from there, we're just going to briefly touch on what we talked about before the break. Uh, um, so we started six o'clock in Shallah talking about the talking about Islamophobia within uh, within the Tory Party. So we had 
Muhammad Amin, chairman of the Conservative Muslim Forum, uh, and he was basically giving his view views about um, uh, he's giving his views about uh, basically um, you know the the Conservative Party and and the, the 14 or so members who who were expelled because they were basically um, alleged to have or had made comments which were deemed to be uh, anti-Muslim. Uh, and his view basically was, was that the the party is good at dealing with individual cases, uh, individual cases of, of uh, people having views like that or of expressing views like that, uh, but more needs to be done in terms of uh, having a more a consistent uh, approach to um, a consistent approaches or dealing with Islamophobia within the party. Now, the allegation of Islamophobia within uh, within the Conservative Party mirrors similar sort of allegations of anti-Semitism, uh, I guess, within the Labour Party. Um, and I guess the the topic of discussion, uh, really, the focus of discussion, really, was around the fact that what is it within the Conservative Party uh, which people think that they can join and express the views. Uh, which uh, are deemed to be uh, against uh, uh, against Muslims, and he and his organisation uh, are effectively highlighting that particular issue, as well as uh, as well as um, uh, I guess uh, Lady Wasi, who's written extensively about uh, um, uh, extensively ab uh, about this issue within the Conservative Party, and she's been campaigning for a number of years to try and highlight it. Uh, the other thing that, that came out of the discussion really was was the fact that um, uh, that according to Muhammad Amin, uh, individual cases are dealt with, but high-profile cases aren't dealt with uh, as much as perhaps they will be dealt with uh, with sort of uh, lower-ranking sort of uh, individual members. And he, he cited the case of uh, of the former foreign foreign secretary who wrote about, uh, I guess, um, uh, not very sort of. Uh, uh, very well um, about sort of people who wear niqab, the women who wear niqab, and, and they're basically a link to to certain um, certain items. So anyway, so that that's that's was the discussion we had in in the first half hour. Uh, in the second half hour, uh, we spoke to Omar, who's a parent at the uh, at the school in Birmingham, Parkfield School in Birmingham, a primary school in Birmingham, uh, where the uh, where basically the parents are, are disagreeing, uh, disagreeing basically with the uh, No Outsiders program, which is being presented, um, and, and they are basically protesting against that to, to try and sort of get that stopped from within the school. Uh, and that was that. So uh, I want to move on to the the topic um, at hand now. I think we do have a re we do have somebody. Uh, we have Robert Macca, uh, who uh, I think represents Care. Uh, hi, Robert. Hi. Good afternoon. Good, uh, well, good evening here, but good afternoon anyway. Well, good evening there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I guess you're not representing Care, or are you? No, I'm the National Government Affairs Director for the Council on American Islamic Relations. My name is Robert Macaw. Right. Hi, Robert. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, we're, we're, always we're always pleased to have people from across the uh, Atlantic talking to us on our radio. So welcome indeed. Uh, so I just wanted to get a, a, a background to the story of Ilhan, Ilhan Omar. Uh, and she's been basically there's been a few headlines about the fact that she she's been accused of anti-Semitism, etc., etc., etc. And I just wanted to find out what mm -hmm. the background is really uh, for our listeners. 
Well, since Congresswoman uh, Ilhan Omar was elected uh, last year, she has been the target of the U.S. Islamophobia Network and those who are threatened in Congress of uh, a refugee, uh, African-American, a Muslim woman speaking her truth, and in her being given a position on the Foreign Affairs Committee, her voice has been elevated where she can speak to issues like human rights abuses, whether it's in Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. or in Israel. And that threatens the current establishment uh, in Congress where uh, people are not allowed to have an open and free dialogue about human rights abuses in Israel. And there is a trope that Muslims are somehow always anti-Semitic. So no matter what Congresswoman Ilhan says about Israel, it's always viewed through that lens, well, it must have an anti-Semitic meaning or basis. And that's not true. In every single statement Congresswoman Ilhan has made about Israel, it has always been about the nation of Israel, not its Jewish people, about the policies of Israel, or about the U.S. Uh, Israel lobby that advocates uh, for just, you know, uh, absolute loyalty to whichever government is in you know, charge of the country and yeah, and that, that's, improper to question. And, and that, that's basically the comment I think that's attracted the the ire of, of the pro-Israel lobby in, in America, the fact that sh- she seems to sort of imply that there is that um, there is that demand basically of allegiance. And, and what you're saying is, is that is the case or that's not the case? Uh, what she's exposing is that the pro-Israel lobby would encourage members of Congress to be loyal to Israel irregardless of what human rights abuses it does, to turn a blind eye. Mm-hmm. And she is arguing that that is not the duty of Congress. Mm-hmm. And she's arguing for a free and open debate about Israel. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and just a little bit of background about Omar, because I'm not, not sure many people are familiar with Omar. So she was elected in the, the recent... Uh, she was elected in the 2018 midterm election to replace uh, Congressman Keith Ellison, who is um, also re- who was representing the state of uh, Minnesota. Uh, he was the first uh, Muslim elected to Congress. Okay. She is now one of the first two Muslim women elected to Congress. Right. Okay. So, so she got elected basically because. Or did he step down, or did she sort of replace him? Well, he uh, he, he he made a lateral move. He is now the attorney general for the state of Minnesota. Right. Okay. So, so she she got elected, and this is her first basically role as a as a representative in the House of Representatives, I guess. Yes, although she's had a long history in the state legislature in Minnesota. So she's experienced in in dealing with tough situations. Yes. Right. This okay. is not her first time at the radio. She's been attacked for years uh, for supporting Palestinian rights, for supporting refugee rights, for just being a woman who wears the job and is an elected official. Right. So let, let's talk about the, the issue of wearing the hijab. Now, I guess in America, um, is that still seen as a, as a very divisive thing? And the fact that she wears the hijab is provoking that kind of uh, response, regardless of what she says? Uh, in America, we have the absolute right, uh, w- any woman has the absolute right to choose to wear a hijab if she wants to. There's no laws that impinge that ability. Uh, it does, however, make her a target of the U.S. Islamophobia network, uh, mm-hmm. where 
um, you know, she's a visible sign of being a Muslim in a higher uh, elected position. Now, elaborate on the Islamophobia network. I mean, you mentioned it a couple of times. What, what are you referring yeah, to? Yeah, sure. So there's a multi-hundred million dollar network of over 30 organizations that uh, very much promote a narrative that Muslims in America should be politically radioactive, they shouldn't be listened to, that Muslims have an ulterior agenda, uh, that we uh, somehow we're not a part really of the country, that we're, uh, you know, a fifth column. Uh, it's always through a conspiratorial lens that somehow Muslims seek to subvert the American way of life. Uh, when you know that it's absolute rubbish. And, and these people are quite prominent, are they? I mean, give me some names. Uh, they're very prominent within the Republican Party. Mm. Uh, so whether it's a person like you know uh, Daniel uh, Pipes, uh, Frank Gaffney. Just to name two very prominent figures, uh, Steve Emerson, uh, they run organizations that are tightly aligned with the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And recently, uh, when uh, President Trump cited a letter uh, you know, calling for uh, Ilhan to step down uh, from the Foreign Relations Committee, he was actually citing a letter that was signed by uh, several people tied to that network. And that, this particular network has associations, links with uh, Israel? Uh, it... it supports Israel uh, at the detriment of the Palestinian people, uh, and it's tightly aligned with the Republican Party. And it's not that every Republican supports this network, but a lot of leaders, uh, you know, uh, lend them their ear. Right. Okay. So, um, so let's move on a little bit. So we talked a little bit about Oman. We talked about the the hijab, and we talked about the network. Uh, that that uh, basically. Is. So what what if she's on the foreign relations committee? Um, I, I assume the aim uh, and the pressure that's being applied really is to um, to get her to step down. Uh, and I guess the reason for that would be because she's Palestinian leaning, right? Uh, it's because she uh, vocally supports the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction movement. Right, okay, and, and that that's the... That's and her the and Rashida Tlaib are the two first members of Congress to actively embrace that movement. Right, okay, and this movement is seen as, as being detrimental to Israel. Um, and, and, and does that, uh, I guess that particular view that she holds, uh, is that prevalent view within Congress uh, or and within America? Uh, what, what's, not what's, within Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you're Democrat or Republican, generally uh, you would either condemn the BDS movement or you would not associate yourself with the movement. But there's never before uh, this point of history been a member of Congress that will openly support the BDS movement. Mm, and, and there has been some movement. Which, again, is a boycott movement against illegal settlement in Israel and human rights abuses. Uh, and the BDS movement, there has been some discussions, at least anyway, of... of of basically outlawing that in America. Is that right? Uh, well, there you cannot outlaw free speech in America, but they are making it very hard uh, to participate in this movement. So at the state level, there are a number of laws that would prevent you from joining uh, a BDS campaign and being a state contractor. Uh, mm-hmm. Currently, CARE is involved in two uh, lawsuits uh, trying to have that overturned, um, one in Maryland, one in Texas. Uh, the ACLU, another national civil liberties organization, is also involved in trying to overturn these state laws. But then you have uh, resolutions and bills in Congress that would try to make more permanent the authority of states to pass such laws because it's in such legal question. Right. Okay. 
Uh, and, and I guess, I mean, what 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 authority does being on the House of Foreign Affairs Committee give? Uh, give well, again, help? the House Foreign Affairs Committee is the committee of jurisdiction to have oversight on the State Department, on U.S. aid, on American foreign policy tools and instruments, and they get to review these programs and hold American officials, uh, you know, placed by the administration accountable. Right. Okay. And and this this committee. Um, does it? I assume it's just a review committee, right? Does it not? Does it have? No, uh, it it it, pa- it 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 reviews the government's uh, programs and amend them. The, uh, it, and it can pass laws to amend these programs. Right. It it can or it can recommend laws, I guess, to to recommend. Well, it, it, its members review laws submitted to that committee. Any member of Congress can introduce a law. Uh, if the law has any foreign affairs merits, it will be sent to that committee uh, where it can be reviewed, marked up, and passed out to Congress for a vote. Mm-hmm. Members of the committee quite often introduce their own legislation as well. And since they sit on the committee, uh, they have more gravitas, more weight in introducing these bills. Right. Okay. So let, let's just talk about Omar uh, has, uh, Ilhan herself. Uh, so. I think we, we mentioned the fact that um, she has some experience, I guess, uh, at the, the state level uh, dealing with such matters. But how is she coping? How is she dealing with uh, what seems to be quite an intense pressure, uh, you know, up against a, a very strong lobby? Well, I, she's faring quite well initially uh, because of her comment where she just said that the pro-Israel lobby would try to encourage a dual allegiance to Israel where members of Congress would disregard its human rights abuses. Uh, There was going to be a resolution introduced that would not mention her by name, but, you know, condemn anti-Semitism, but it was publicly seen as a rebuke of Congresswoman Ilhan. Now, she is an African-American woman, she's of Somali origin, she's a refugee, and she's very progressive-leaning. So we had the Progressive Caucus mm-hmm. within Congress, and we had the Black Caucus within Congress actually stand up to Leader Pelosi and say that any resolution that just condemns anti-Semitism and is seen as a rebuke to uh, Congresswoman Ilhan would be unacceptable. So uh, initially there was going to be a vote on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. That vote was tabled. Uh, the resolution was tabled, and a new resolution was introduced on Thursday, uh, which not only condemns anti-Semitism, but Islamophobia, mm-hmm. uh, other forms of bigotry, including anti-black racism, condemns white supremacy, and that passed of, with a hun- of 407 votes to 23, mm-hmm. uh, one person marking themselves present, which was Steve King, a representative Steve King, who uh, himself has uh, supported uh, white nationalist ideals. Right. Okay. And and what 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 does the what does this uh, what what will this do basically? Well, so again, a resolution isn't a bill, but it's a sense of the Congress. It's a statement, and this is the first statement Congress has ever actually made as a lawmaking body, which says that its position is not only does it uh, condemn anti-Semitism, which it has in the past, but that it also condemns Islamophobia. And there has actually never been a solid statement by Congress, especially since 9-11, when there's just always been a backlash and targeting of the Muslim community when there's a rise 
and anti-Muslim hate crimes to condemn these, and that was condemned in this resolution. Uh, and so we took what was a bad situation, we were able to put a good narrative into it, and, you know, Representative Ilhan voted in support of this resolution. Every Democrat did, and uh, a number of Republicans, all except really 23 members, uh, 24 members voted uh, for it. So this is the first time Republicans mm. have been actually forced to stand up and condemn Islamophobia. Uh, and, and I guess it's seen as, it's seen as a, a vote of confidence in Ilhan. Um, it the, is. The, the way, the way it's actually it ended really, up. It, you know, it, it, it allows the, the current Democratic leadership to course correct where um, they cannot just allow in bad faith accusations of anti-Semitism, mm. uh, you know, rule the day. You actually have to show real anti-Semitic intent, and you just can't make that accusation because you oppose the pro-Israel lobby. Right. Okay. So just talking broadly a little bit uh, about the, uh, I guess we, we, we get a, a view based on a few headlines here in, in how uh, you know how things are in America, and we form an opinion based on that. Uh, and I think there's been lots of talk and lots of discussions around Donald Trump and, and his views towards Muslims, etc. Now, he said a lot of stuff against Muslims uh, during his campaigns, uh, and, and there's been some, I guess, some uh, attempts being made uh, to pass some legislation uh, about you know restricting people c to come to America. But beyond that, has the climate, uh, has Trump changed the climate, uh, the political climate in America, uh, you know, to be a lot more anti-Muslim than and than it was? Well, uh, yes, because when you look at the Republican National Committee's website, which is the official website of the Republican Party, hmm. they actively have a survey, which you can get to from the front page, called Listening to America. Yeah. And one of their primary questions is, are you concerned about the possible spread of Sharia in the United States? Wow. Wow. Now, that is horrible, wow. but it hmm. is a top-down communication from the Republican Party to its members, to its supporters, mm. that Islamophobia is acceptable within the Republican Party. And we have seen countless examples of usually Republican members mm. engaging in Islamophobia, whether it's in the campaign or sharing social media mm. or making statements. Just last week in the West Virginia State Legislature in the House, mm. uh, they had a Republicans take the Rotunda event, mm. uh, the, the, the House lawmaking body, and they had open tables where Republican supporters could post, mm. uh, you know, pictures, posters, you know, banners, mm. and there was a photo of Ilhan Omar mm. with uh, the World Trade Center burning behind well, her, saying, well, well. Uh, you know, we have we as a nation must mm. have forgotten. And this was, um, you know, a very vile attack on her. Uh, she is very, you know, Islamophobia is not just words, but it can lead to violence. And uh, this is really political violence aimed at her. And there were lawmakers that day in the West Virginia State Legislature that were condemning that sign uh, as free speech. Now, they would never condemn the posting of a swastika as free speech mm, or yeah. a noose as free speech, but for some reason it was more acceptable. Overall, in the end, the Republican Party denounced all forms of uh, you know, bigotry and hatred, but mm. they never actually apologized to Representative Omar, and they never actually called out Islamophobia as being one of those vile forms of bigotry. 
Right, and and it's, I guess, uh, are, you, are you saying that that kind of thing, is it prevalent or that, there are some the cases? That's the climate in America. That's the, that's the climate in America. Within the Republican Party. Within the, and, and what about the Democratic Party then? How's, what's the, what's the, is that a completely different sort of scenario in there or do you still have some pockets of? Well, I, I think there is some implicit bias in some lawmakers where if they can look at statements made by Representative Ilhan about Israel and they can only see anti-Semitism, uh, they have some deep-seated negative views of Muslims. But overall, the Democratic Party uh, is widely supported by Muslims uh, in the election. Um, there are more Muslims that have run for office under the Democratic ticket than other parties. So right now it's seen as the more favorable place uh, for Muslims, and and and, and, and are, are, are Muslim Muslims become becoming more politically uh, active? I guess uh, in supporting yes. them. Uh, you know, we we, we tracked uh, well over a hundred Muslims that have run for office uh, hmm. from 2016 to 2018. We issued a report with two other organizations called the Changemakers Report. Mm. Uh, we are able to document more Muslims more than ever running for office in the United States. Mm. So uh, they're not, you know, hunkering down and hiding out. They're taking this as a challenge, and they're running for office, and they're winning on very progressive and inclusive platforms. Brilliant. Okay. So we, we, usually a candidate wins not because of the Muslim community support, mm. but because of the broader support they've built up over the years in their a community. Ab absolutely. And th that's the point I wanted to finish on, is the fact that you have a hijabi, you have an immigrant, right? You have somebody from uh, Afro-American background who's able to garner support, I guess, from the wider community to be able to be where she is. Mm -hmm. And, and, exactly. and, and in the context of what you talked about, uh, an increasingly hostile sort of, uh, at least within one party, uh, attitude towards Muslims. Yes, okay. absolutely. Robert, uh, I'm just going to have to thank you now. We've just got a few more s uh, seconds to go uh, for this uh, this session. Uh, really been interesting talking to you uh, today. And hopefully we'll talk again on, uh, I guess, a different matter. Thank you very much for, for joining me today. Uh, thank you. Have thank a good evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Okay, we're going to take a, sh a break uh, in a few seconds. Uh, we were talking about uh, Ilhan Omar, a remarkable uh, person in America, a remarkable Muslim woman in America who's uh, taking on perhaps one of the, the biggest lo lobbies in America uh, and appears to be garnering some support. Uh, good on her. Right. Okay, uh, we're going to take a break, and we're gonna, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Umayyad dynasty, uh, which is being played as part of our Muslim history season, inshallah. So join me after the break. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Inspire FM. This is Friday Night Live. Uh, my name is Zafar Iqbal. Uh, before the break, we were talking about a remarkable young lady, Ilhan Omar, uh, who is a representative, uh, a Democrat representative in the House of Representatives in America, and how she basically is uh, uh, basically sort of uh, standing up to uh, 
accusations of various sorts. Okay, that was uh, before the break. We want to move on to slightly different, uh, a, a slightly different discussion. Now we want to talk about the Umayyad dynasty. And if you've been following uh, Inspire FM, uh, you know we'll be doing, we have been doing a Muslim history uh, month, a season of uh, talks and documentaries and discussions around uh, sort of uh, the, the the past, effectively uh, the Muslim past. Uh, and we are actually sort of talking about the Umayyad dynasty uh, at the moment. Uh, so in keeping with that, we're going to have a short session, short half an hour session, really. I know it's probably way too short to talk about Umayyads who covered perhaps two centuries, uh, uh, a two century period. Uh, but a, a, a brief glance uh, at the Umayyad dynasty, uh, but talked about uh, by somebody who's, uh, who's an expert or people who are experts in, uh, uh, in, in that field. So uh, I want to welcome, first of all, uh, Professor Gerald Hortig, Horting. Uh, from the from SOAS. Uh, welcome, Professor uh, Professor Gerald. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, perhaps you can you can introduce yourself. Uh, I've only got your name and where you're from on my crib sheet. Perhaps you could you can <laughs> yes. explain your expertise in this particular area. Um, I'm a historian for, of the Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I was professor at the School of Oriental and African Studies, mm-hmm. SOAS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Umayyads were one of my specialities. Oh, your speciality. So we've got the right person today, then. I uh, hope so. <laughs> uh, well, actually, we're, we're also trying to get hold of uh, Dr. Andrew Marsham, uh, Faculty oh, yes. of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies from... In Cambridge, Ca- yes. I Ca- know him well. Yeah. Cambridge University. So we're going to have two authorities on the subject, uh, and that hopefully will make things easy for me, because uh, I know very little... Uh, about this particular subject, uh, and hopefully uh, y- both of you will will uh, enlighten us. Uh, l- let me let me also welcome uh, uh, Professor Andrew, Doctor Andrew Marsham as well. Uh, hi, Doctor uh, Doctor Andrew Marsham. Hello. Hi. Good evening. Uh, and perhaps you can introduce yourself as well. We've got Professor uh, Horting on the line as well from SOAS. Uh, and we're going to talk about, I guess, uh, the Umayyad dynasty. Perhaps you, if you can just give us a, a short, short introduction to yourself. Uh, so I teach um, the history of Islam at Cambridge University. Um, and I've worked particularly on the political culture of the early Muslims and uh, history writing in Arabic in the early period. Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, right. Um, If I can basically ask uh, Professor Gerald, first of all, uh, if you can just put put the context in place. Uh, So the Umayyads were who and what period of time and what was happening around that time, please, if you wouldn't mind. Okay. Uh, They were a family from Mecca. Mm Mm-hmm. The town of the prophet yeah and uh, they ruled as caliphs mm-hmm. um, over the lands that the arabs had conquered following the death of the prophet yeah uh, they they ruled over those lands from about 661 until about 750 so that's a period of about 90 years 90 years okay so i've got, got yeah. my my uh, my calculations are way off then i think that's a couple yeah, of 200 years is too too long yeah <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, and and what what else was happening around that time? So you you had the the Arab dynasties or Muslim dynasties, uh, but what you know what was happening around that time? Where were the Romans? Where were the I guess the Persians, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. What what was what was what was happening around that time? Well, the Arabs had uh, defeated the Romans yeah. in the Middle East, and the Romans had lost uh, 
Syria and Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they still existed. Their capital was in Constantinople, modern Istanbul. Yeah. Uh, and they were to survive there for many centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Persians, on the other hand, their empire had been completely destroyed and the Arabs had taken over all of the Persian lands. Right. So, so the Umayyads were pretty much the... Um, the the people of the power at that time, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, they were the, uh, the the rulers of all of the lands that the Arabs had conquered. They were the um, the only rulers of it. It was their empire. Right. So, so do, uh, Dr. Andrew, perhaps uh, if you can uh, put put a context in terms of uh, sequencing. So, the Umayyads came after the. Um, I guess the the caliphs the pr- previous to them. That's right. In in Sunni tradition, uh, yeah. Sunni Islamic tradition, you talk about the four rightly guided caliphs: the yeah. Rashidun, yeah. Uh, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, who actually was an Umayyad, yeah. uh, and then Ali, yeah. and then uh, there was a civil war uh, during the caliphate of Ali, mm-hmm. and uh, the commander who ruled Syria what had been Roman Syria, a man named Muawiyah, who yeah. was a cousin of Uthman and a member of the Umayyad dynasty, won that civil war. Mm-hmm. And he established the Umayyad dynasty in 661. Right, okay. So, so they, they're, they're, um, Muawiyah is the, is the fifth caliph after, uh, or fifth ruler after Muhammad. Right, and, and, and okay, so I guess depending on what your position is, you may or may not recognize him as as a uh, as a rightly guided or not but uh, so uh the term dynasty i guess implies um implies a rulership different to the the previous caliphs i guess and uh, t- tell us a little bit about how that came about and how uh, hereditary rule took took hold in that region so uh, Muawiyah became a controversial figure because he sought to pass the caliphate or the, the leadership of the Muslims yeah. to his son, to a man called Yazid. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he did this during his own lifetime. So he asked the Muslims to swear allegiance to Yazid as his successor right. while he himself was still alive. Right. Um, Actually, they, they mostly did that, but there were a number of people who refused to pledge allegiance to Yazid because they thought this was wrong to pass the, uh, to pass the caliphate to, to a son, or at least they weren't happy with this particular choice. Um, and and, and that, that was different from what happened previously, because previously... Uh, it was the first time that the caliphate, um, which is what they seem to have called this position, was passed um, to to the son of a ruler successfully. Right. Uh, uh, and uh, th- uh, subsequent members of the Umayyad dynasty, the people who ruled over the next 80, 90 years or so, uh, followed that pattern of passing leadership among the Umayyad family, sometimes to brothers and sometimes to sons. But right. yeah, this, um, this marks a departure from the way that the, the leadership had passed immediately after the death of the prophet. Right, okay, and I think previously, uh, the leaders had either been selected or elected, um, for, um, you know, depending, I guess, which viewpoint you look at. Uh, that's right. Um, I mean, there was an element of election hmm. for the Umayyads, too. They did have to get the approval of their immediate family and allies for their choices. Right. Um but but, but from they, within, they within did, the family, though? They did so within a particular branch of Quraysh, their own family, that's right. Right, okay. And, and uh, is there any evidence to suggest whether this particular choice uh, was, 
I guess there was some some uh, there was some dissenting voices, but did that prove popular and people accept it, or was that opposed consistently? This particular sort of um, this system, di- of di- dynast- dynastic system, really. It was broadly accepted. I think it's fair to say, mm. um, because well, the Umayyads did it reasonably successfully for for um, nearly a hundred years. They faced all kinds of resistance to their rule, of, of course, and much of that was articulated. Uh, on the idea that they they didn't really have the right to hold this position, uh, mm. but when they were overthrown, um, leadership passed to another branch mm. of the Prophet's tribe, this time to the Abbasids, and they passed the Caliphate in a similar way right. among themselves uh, for another 500 years. Right. So, it, it, uh, the principle of dynastic succession seems to have been broadly accepted in mm. practice, right. although in theory there was an element of election and really. Uh, ultimately, Sunni Muslims came to the view that the caliph should be elected or chosen, really, by uh, some group of Muslims. Right. Okay. But Professor uh, Gerald, perhaps if if you can t- uh, tell me uh, what kind of um, areas of influence the Umayyads had, um, and then I guess in particular what what their major achievements were. Okay. Um, when you say areas of influence, I, I mean I mean geographically. I mean h- how far. Uh, how far did the influence reach? Right. Oh, well, uh, in the 90 years that they ruled, the the lands that they ruled expanded because they were constantly sending expeditions mm. out to uh, conquer the neighboring lands so that by the time uh, of the fall of the dynasty in 750, mm-hmm. um, they had got as far as the... In the West, they got right to Morocco and across into Spain, mm-hmm. so that the southern and central areas of Spain were under their control. Mm-hmm. And in the East, they'd got to beyond the borders of Persia into Afghanistan and northern India. Uh, so it was a huge empire. It was really, really big. Right. Okay. And and, and I guess uh, how did they? Um I guess contain that that level of influence. Was it centrally managed, or was it sort of, um, you know, governed remotely? Yeah, it, it's a hard question. I mean, um, okay, it's uh, it seems to be mostly centrally managed. They mm. they did have enough control to depose governors when they wanted to and bring them back to mm. the center of the empire and punish them after they deposed them. Mm-hmm. Um, but quite how that worked, it's it's really hard to see. I mean, it's such a huge place, and um, communications were not as they are today, you know. Indeed, indeed. And I guess a lot of it was down to the governors, and I think governors did, uh, unless, unless they, they upset the, the central authority in a very bad way, they kind of did what they wanted to really, I guess. Um, yeah, but there's obviously sort of give and take. Um, they had... Governors had a certain amount of authority, but they also recognised the authority of the caliph. Mm, okay, so um, perhaps you, if if you can talk about their presence in, and uh, where did they leave a, a lasting legacy? I mean, that that's a, is a more appropriate question. Um, it, was it in their sort of lands in in Syria, or was it elsewhere? And and what do they excel in, really? Well, their legacy uh, is is all over. Mm. Um, I mean, simply in terms of building and things mm. like that, there, there isn't an awful lot. But, uh, I mean, the Dome of the Rock is, mm. for instance, uh, an Umayyad building. Right. Um, the mosque in Damascus is uh, Umayyad, and there were many other mosques uh, 
mm-hmm. founded in the Umayyad period. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, I mean, I think their legacy is much more in laying the grounds for the future development of Islam right. uh, okay. in, in that area. Right, okay. And, and in what particular direction did that was that then? Well, it was under the Umayyads that the Quran came to establish it, to be established as the scripture of Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, various religious practices, such as the pilgrimage to Mecca and the daily prayers, all of those things became established. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that more important than that, I, I mean, when the Umayyads began to rule, uh, the only Muslims were the Arabs who had come out of Arabia as conquerors. Mm-hmm. But under the Umayyads, Islam began to spread um, among the conquered peoples, mm-hmm. among the non-Arabs, the those who had formerly been Christians and Jews and other religions living under Persian and uh, Roman rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them now became Muslims, and they... Uh, provided the basis for the transformation of Islam from being purely an Arab religion mm-hmm. to the universal religion that we know today. Uh, and uh, Dr. Marsham, if if you could perhaps expand on on that particular that point about, uh, I guess, making Islam a more universal religion, um, and how they managed to do that. Yeah, I think I I would agree with Professor Horting that that's the really, ultimately the. The fundamental legacy of the Umayyads is the establishment of the core of what we now think of as the Arab world um, mm-hmm. and also the Persian world um, and the central lands of, of the Islamic world, at least in, in pre-modern times. Um, probably when the Arabians came out of the peninsula mm-hmm. uh, and conquered these territories, they didn't really think of themselves first and foremost even as Arabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the we can see an Arab ethnic identity mm-hmm. developing during the Umayyad period. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as Professor Wording said, at the same time, uh, we see groups from the conquered territories beginning to convert to Islam. Mm-hmm. So initially they do so because they join the armies of the Umayyads and their commanders, yeah. or they become senior figures in the administration of the tax system mm-hmm. of the new empire. and. Uh, increasingly that seems to require conversion to Islam. Right. Um, and then towards the end of the Umayyad period, we begin to see uh, in some regions uh, significant conversion mm-hmm. uh, to Islam. Um, and the two most famous regions for that are probably North Africa mm-hmm. uh, and Eastern Iran, Khorasan, mm-hmm. um, where there are big rebellions actually against Umayyad rule Mm-hmm. Uh, by in in North Africa populations that we might call Berber yeah. indigenous North African populations, and in Iran by populations we might call Persian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in both cases, they they rebel against Umayyad rule in the name of Islam. So they take up the Islamic faith mm-hmm. and they use it against their Umayyad rulers. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and what and, and what was what was their particular gripe for the uh, about the religion? Is it? Ah, this is another very difficult question. Uh, look, they didn't, uh, well, the interesting thing is they didn't have a gripe about the religion, in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. they adopted Islam as a way of resisting Umayyad rule. Um, it looks, uh, in North Africa, uh, in both cases, it looks as though uh, questions about taxation mm-hmm. um, okay. were, were uh, one cause of resistance to okay. Umayyad rule. So in terms of formalizing, I guess, the, uh, the teaching of, of the religion... Um, 
Uh, is there any evidence of that during the Umayyad period? The fact that you know here it was, it was a kind of like a, um, a, a kind of like a spoken and and uh, memorized type of uh, an arrangement in the the caliph's period, I guess, to a more yes, more that's right. Uh, sorry. Yeah, carry on. As Professor Hooding said, one of the things that happens in the early to middle Umayyad period is the establishment of the Quran as a book, as a written text. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually said that um, Uthman, so in Sunni tradition, the third rightly guided caliph, yeah. um, had a significant role in compiling the Quran. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably true. But it, And then uh, it's it's definitely the case that later Umayyad rulers began to produce big kind of large format Qurans mm. which were, uh, had uh, clearer marks on the mm. um, to so, establish so vocalization and so on. Well, ma- mass uh, production of the Quran? To not exactly mass production but yes production of, of big format ornamental Qurans that were to be uh, put on display in mosques and things like that. Mm. Um, so that's one aspect of the public articulation of, of Islam. Another one that's been mentioned is the construction of, of big congregational mosques. mosques okay. And we've got a number of examples of that, like the Great Mosque in Damascus, which is an Umayyad mosque. Mm. Um, and a lot of um, leading scholars whose names show up in the later Islamic tradition were at the Umayyad court or associated with the Umayyads. So there are figures like Aura ibn Zubayr and Az-Zuhri, um, who are authorities on the biography of Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem to have been active in transmitting traditions during the Umayyad period, and so have some close association with Umayyad rulers. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the, the Abbasid period is remembered for, for I guess, the um, the translation of, of uh, um, the, the Greek traditions. I guess, but was there any evidence during the Umayyad period that they'd actually they'd actually taken on um, the cultural and intellectual, um, uh, I guess, thinking of the people that, that they've conquered? Yeah, I think um, scholars are beginning to push earlier and earlier the period when uh, the Arabian conquerors begin to engage with the intellectual traditions of the peoples that they've conquered. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see in um, the the skills that were needed to construct a building like the Dome of the Rock, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, that they were using uh, local, probably Greek-speaking, Syriac-speaking architects to produce to help them produce these monuments mm-hmm. um, a lot of the Umayyad caliphs are said to have had an interest in history we don't have any surviving texts that were produced for them but I suspect that they may have sponsored mm-hmm. um, written histories and been interested in the, the part the Roman and Persian past right professor uh, Gerald um, well, we've only got about five minutes or so um, but I just wanted to sort of uh, a, a quick rundown on the demise of the Umayyads after 90 years. What, what, was, what brought that about and, and uh, how did that actually happen? Well, uh, as uh, Andrew Marsham has said, um, towards the end of the Umayyad dynasty, the uh, Islam had begun to spread quite significantly among the conquered peoples. Hmm. But the conquered peoples didn't like the Umayyads for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And they... Uh, tended to support forms of Islam that were different from that supported by the Umayyads. Right. Uh, I mean, people think of the Umayyads as Sunnis, but we shouldn't really think of them as that because Sunni Islam doesn't really uh, take on the shape that we know today until after the end of the Umayyad period. Mm-hmm. But um, one of those groups of opponents to the Umayyads was in the far northeast of Persia, 
mm-hmm. in the province of Khorasan. Yeah. And there was a lot of opposition to the Umayyads there. Mm-hmm. And somehow that got uh, taken over by the Abbasid family, mm-hmm. um, who uh, eventually got control of the revolt and organized armies which marched from Khorasan towards the center of the caliphate, defeating the Umayyad armies as they went. Mm-hmm. And by 749, 750, uh, they completely defeated the Umayyads, uh, hunted down the last uh, Umayyad caliphs uh, and killed them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're told that they uh, dug up the bodies of the, of the previous caliphs who had died mm-hmm. and scattered their ashes. <laughs> Yeah, I think we heard that that uh, as well. So, so th- this was this was in in the in the Middle East, I guess, in Syria and the Arab lands. But Umayyads continued in in uh, in Spain, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. The uh, one of the Umayyad family managed to get away from this massacre of the Umayyads and made made his way to Spain, mm-hmm. uh, where the army supported him, and um, he became the the governor of Spain. Mm. Uh, and eventually, the the Umayyad, his descendants, um, transformed the governorship of Spain into their own caliphate. That was not until the tenth century. Right. Um, and and did they refer to themselves as Umayyads, or was that? A, or uh, yes, they did. Yes, yes. So I mean, if you, if you go to Spain these days, I mean, they've still got, uh, I guess, reminders of the Umayyads, and you've seen s- some bridges and whatever named after the Umayyad. Um, so, I, I guess, strictly speaking, 750 wasn't the end of them. They carried on in, in Spain for much longer. Yeah, it's rather different in Spain. I mean, when people talk about the Umayyads, they really tend to think of the dynasty that lasted until 750. Right. And the Spanish Umayyads are, uh, although they're descendants of the Syrian ones, it's, it's rather different. Right, okay. So, they're, they're not categorized quite in the same way. No. Uh, okay, uh, so so they got wiped out basically uh, from the heartlands. They managed to survive and, and hold on in Spain. Uh, Doctor An- uh, Andrew, um, so what what happens uh, after that then? So uh, the people from Khorasan take over the Abbasids, the start of the uh, the Abbasid dynasty. Uh, how were they different? So as Professor Harding says, there's a, a revolt in Khorasan, yeah. um, which the Abbasid family. Um, succeed in in taking control of. Um, they are different because they they drew their military support from from the east of the empire, from Khorasan. So right. they bring in an entirely new army at mm. the center of the empire. They take over most of the same lands that the Umayyads had ruled, except that North Africa and Spain now break away from central control and become independent, as we've heard. Right. Uh, and they move the capital from Syria to Iraq, and they establish the city of Baghdad, very famously, uh, in 762. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that becomes the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate for much of the subsequent four or five hundred yeah. years. And, and that extends only as far as Egypt, and does it? Or yes, they still ruled Egypt in the in the eighth and ninth centuries. Right. Okay. And beyond that, uh, we still had sort of independent rulers and the vestiges right. of of the Umayyads. Uh, After eight hundred, uh, further west than that, they don't have uh, any control, any direct control. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I guess it's, it's probably worth pointing out that the Abbasids, um, um, although they they came from Iran and uh, and Khorasan, you wouldn't classify them as, as Shia. Uh, uh, no. Ultimately, they end up 
uh, being seen as the figureheads of Sunni Islam, uh, the, the caliphs and the leaders of Sunni Islam. But the the revolt that puts them into power has some what we might say are Shi'i characteristics and they made something of the fact that they were close relatives of Muhammad when mm -hmm. they took power but in the end uh, they, they, they quickly arrive at a Sunni uh, Islamic position that's really when Sunni Islam as we know it develops under, under Abbasid rule Right, so I think there's a slightly different sort of uh uh, the, the definition of Sunnism, I guess, varies. Okay, so we only got about 45 seconds left. Uh, uh, just enough time to thank you both. Uh, it's been really fascinating for me. I think I've learned a lot, but uh, in half an hour, you can't really do justice to, to this particular topic. It's a vast topic, and I guess you guys have spent uh, many a year studying these. Uh, just, just a few seconds, final comments from each of you, and, and I have to thank you very much for that. Uh, yeah. Sorry, After you, uh, <laughs> I, I think I'm just going to have to sit now because I've just run out of time. Uh, just thank you very much, right, for joining me today. And I, I guess on, on future discussions, we'll, we'll invite you again. Thank you very much. Okay, thank, thank you, you very much. Bye thank bye. You. Right, okay, with that, I'm going to end the program and I'll see you next week, inshallah, on, on Friday Night Live. Uh, my, name is, my name is Zafar, and uh, until next time, Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We stream our daily broadcast on inspirefm.org. You'll find all our daily updates on our social media at InspireFM Luton.